navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 22 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new podcast in addition to the Datascape. It's called the Cloudscape Podcast. It's a monthly news-style show where we discuss the latest feature announcements from the public cloud vendors and help you understand what you need to care about, what they do, and why you should know them. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Now on to today's show. I've had a number of customers approach me over the past few months about cloud migration strategies. And I've been looking for a colleague of mine, Pierre Glissot, to come on the show and talk about a recent migration he'd been working on. He's been working on a massive, massive cloud migration that involved over 10,000 virtual machines. And so I'm joined today with Pierig to finally get to talk about that. Hey, Pierig, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. Uh, good, and yourself? Very good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Happy to. All right, let's just jump in. So why don't you tell me about the recent migration that you've been working on? Basically, so we were working for an Indonesian company who uh, recently purchased an application that is hosted in Canada. So this Indonesian company is called Amtec, and they actually um, licensed an application called the BlackBerry uh, Messenger from BlackBerry. So they basically got the rights uh, to run their application uh, the way they want and uh, to basically um, provide that service to uh, the customers. However, it's a bit more uh, complex than just moving something out of a, a data center. So um, they are hosted, BlackBerry data centers are mostly in Canada and US. And so Amtec uh, wants to move um, this application to the cloud and uh, more specifically to the Google Cloud. However, it's a little more complex, yeah, as I was saying, than moving from point A to point B, um, simply because it's more than just a migration. The licensing agreement actually um, excludes certain users of the application to be migrated. For example, um, uh, BlackBerry Enterprise users, which are most probably government agencies and things of the sort, are kind of excluded of the deal. So it's Migration consists of um, user separation as well, which kinds of makes the whole uh, um, project a little more uh, complicated. Okay, so that's the user and application side of things. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about the infrastructure in terms of scale and size and, and history, if you can? Okay, so it's a, a very, very big application. Back a few years ago, BlackBerry Messenger was uh, probably the top, uh, the most trending a messaging application on the market out there. And so it had a huge user base. So we're in reality, we're talking about thousands and thousands of servers. Uh, the total footprint, um, if we count everything, is probably slightly over 10,000 virtual machines uh, hosted on in uh, BlackBerry private data centers. This includes all component applications as well as a big data platform that is used to, to drive the business revenue. Okay. So in total, yes, very large. And so, and I'm not, I mean, let's not give away anything private here, but are you able to comment on the size of the data footprint? So the data footprint, so there's a, a lot of databases in this infrastructure. There's not only, uh, you know, one. They run, for example, one of the technologies that actually helps us a lot in this migration is the use of the Cassandra database. So BlackBerry was already running very, very large clusters in their private data centers, along with data center replication and so on. So um, just those clusters themselves are running on, on hundreds and hundreds of, of nodes. And that's actually a technology that was quite good for us to see in the BlackBerry Messenger application because it's something that we, we immediately understood that we could extend across data centers actually and into 
a cloud to kind of expand that database over to the cloud. Okay. 10,000 virtual machines that moving to the cloud in some sort of a reasonable time frame. That sounds like a very, very daunting migration. Like, how does one make those decisions? How does one even start with something like that? <laughs> well, that's actually a, a very good question because, well, MTech was new to this application, right? So my direct customer was pretty much discovering this application at the same time as I was. So we did that discovery hand in hand. And so to do something like that, you don't really have much of a choice. Uh, there's a, uh, something my math teacher used to tell me uh, when, I, when I was studying was divide terrain. And this kind of applies to, to this migration. You have to divide the application into smaller components, smaller subsets, identify all the dependencies so that you get really a good understanding of how you can even attempt to migrate a component. And so basically what we do is break down that application into as small units as we can and see how we can actually move each one of those units uh, one by one uh, to the cloud. Okay. And so were there any significant challenges in keeping kind of one thing that had moved talking to another thing that hadn't moved yet? Well, yes, we knew that was going to be very complex um, where we're going to need some uh, special network infrastructure as well to accompany um, the operations platform. So what we were going to rely on uh, was going to be Google Cross Connect, which is basically um, a private link to Google Cloud Platform that you can establish from within your data centers. So that's something that we got working early on into the project to actually get that link, uh, that private link. And we, it, Google Cross Connect actually rides on Google's private backbones. So we get incredible good latency um, worldwide. So basically to talk from the Americas to pretty much any region in Google Cloud, including Asian regions uh, such as uh, Taiwan. That along with the databases were key on points that allowed us to, to make this uh, this migration. Okay. As far as this migrate, you know, you talked about isolating and breaking it down into pieces that are workable and then moving them. Did you just, you know, lift and shift, you know, run backup, restore backup onto Google or uh, did you do something else? So in our case, really lift and shift just wasn't an option. And for that, let me circle back a bit on a few words on the application itself. So when we kind of discovered BBM, we had to agree with the customer that this was an aging application. It was going to need some serious restoration to make it keep competing with the other messaging applications on the market today. So to be able to modernize the application, what we had to do first, obviously, was to modernize the architecture and the platform itself. So we wanted to bring the concept of DevOps, of velocity, of flexibility, agility uh, to the application and uh, to the platform itself to be able to do that. So that introduced certain constraints where actually this migration was not going to be a lift and shift. We were, we were going to have to extend the actual platform in BlackBerry data centers onto Google. So think of it as a kind of a blob that grew organically onto another data center, which in this case was Google Cloud to kind of expand like that. And then later on, the plan is to sever that link back to the originating data centers in Canada and US. So that's kind of how, how the migration was going to happen, it was kind of slow expansion onto Google Cloud and then sever the link back to the original data centers. That's kind of the, the overall approach that, that we had in mind. Okay, uh, how many people were involved? 
How many so, engineer types were involved? Engineer types. So including application developers, I consider them to be engineers as well. Mm -hmm. um, we're probably talking about 200 people, probably, something like that. Very cool. There's a lot of a lot of application development was going to be required. So we had a lot of developers. Then we had um, some fairly consequent DevOps teams, a couple of architects to kind of you know guide on the new architecture. So you know a very um, a solid team with a lot of people and a lot of management to tie all that together. Okay, and also very important to quantify the effort. What was the time frame, kind of rough start to end for the project that uh, you were working with? Pretty much at a year. Um, okay. or, that was the time frame. It's, we established it was going to take us pretty much a year um, to do this. And we've discovered along the way a couple of hurdles, of course, that we, we hadn't planned for. And so we're extending this by a bit, but not by that much. So now we're probably going to run into two to three months over that 12-month that um, prediction we had. Okay, cool. Let's talk about technologies in play. So what are some of the technologies you used for the migration? So obviously you talked about having the uh, direct connection, but what other technologies were, were used to, say, move the data over? I'll speak more to the uh, uh, DevOps kinds of, uh, of tooling that we decided to go with first. The first step for us was to actually be able to reproduce the deployment of each one of those, of those units we had identified in BlackBerry. So the goal was basically to get all engineers and developers able to spin up a, a single component on their local laptop. And that was done through the use of uh, mostly Vagrant. Um, so that includes VirtualBox to bring up a virtual machine and with Ansible code to um, automate the provisioning of that machine and configure it um, like we needed it to be configured and um, tie in deployment of the application. So the applications are, are hosted onto GitHub we created a nice series of pipelines that build our applications and push the deployments, make the artifacts ready for us to consume uh, locally on our machines, but also later on into uh, the cloud directly. So there, um, a lot of automation and the tool of choice um, in this case was uh, yeah, Ansible, uh, mostly uh, for the configuration management and for the provisioning Ansible as well with some custom scripts. We didn't choose any um, pre-existing solutions such as Terraform. The NTech engineers uh, were set on Ansible. They had the knowledge, so um, they decided to stick with that. Okay. So that got them working locally. And then, then what did they do in their process? So once they finished... So once we got things working locally, then we started moving these things slowly to Google Cloud in staging and development environments. So the goal was to... We had... To, all of those units working independently for one from another. And now the goal is to try to tie them back in um, to each other. And because we're doing that locally and we're doing that in different network environments, it has to be kind of independent of the network layer, right? So uh, we're not configuring any static IPs and any of these components so that they talk to each other. It's all um, automated so that it adapts to whatever environment um, we run it into. Okay. How did you guys validate in staging? And I realize I'm being very generic about probably many, many applications and features. But in general, like, what was your approach to validate? Because you guys don't know the application either. So how are you validating your stage to move to the next level? So a lot of the uh, developers were actually old BlackBerry employees, right, that have been recuperated by MTech to work on this. So not all knowledge was lost. And a part of the knowledge that was saved was kind of the uh, QA portion of it. So people knew what to expect from the application. 
when it worked or when it did not work. So we were able to rebuild automated test suites to uh, confirm that the application was, was running properly. The first steps, of course, were mostly manual. And I remember a long, long time ago, we got basically a beta Android version deployed on our phones. And the first time that we were able to have two phones talk to each other in the cloud, not a lot of it was automated and all of it was a manual process, but it's something that we built uh, with time to test moving that to production. Okay, cool. Do you want to talk about some of the challenges? I mean, this is not a small effort. You know, you're very casual about it. And I, I think it's incredible. So talk to me about uh, challenges, political uh, or technology, or like what, can, what are some of the issues that you had to overcome? Well, first issue we had to overcome was that we weren't going to get any kind of privileged access to the uh, currently running platform. So BlackBerry uh, BBM is an existing app. It's actually currently running on that platform in the BlackBerry data centers. However, there is no way we were going to get root access to any of those servers to do our investigations. And so we were very much in the same position as Mtech, where we didn't know anything about the application. And not only was that discovery going to be difficult, but it was going to be hindered by kind of having our hands tied in our back to do it, where we had to go through um, other teams within BlackBerry to kind of trickle down the knowledge to us or um, have them, you know, grab a, a snippet of a configuration file and send it back to us so that we could see, uh, take a look at it, understand how it worked and so on. So that kind of, you know, made the, that whole discovery piece quite more difficult than it could have. Definitely. Although I completely understand and agree, you know, the, the security constraints that, that BlackBerry uh, had on this application. Um, it's an application that has been renowned to be very secure. And so uh, that's not something that we could uh, uh, damage while doing this migration, right? We kind of have to keep that that spirit that BlackBerry has put in that their application since the beginning. Right. What other challenges did you face? Well, then obviously, so some of those components were quite difficult to understand. I have uh, uh, two in mind, but they're basically uh, backbone services, uh, let's say for authentication. The authentication mechanisms within the application are quite complex. Um, you're gonna access different parts of the application with different authentication uh, tokens that are gonna be granted to you by a central authentication uh, mechanism. And so the, to understand all the intricacies that that had, for example, was quite complex. And then you had a, a something that we could call kind of a, a bus in behind a, of all the, those different components, which was quite tricky to understand as well. Um, those were you know, complex things that were quite complex uh, mm -hmm. to deal with. Mm -hmm. I bet. And let's talk about some of the Google technologies that you adopted. What were some of the Google techs that, that you adopted? Well, something that stood out uh, to us, because having done a little bit of big data before and, you know, uh, log centralization and things of the sort, we saw that some of the things that BlackBerry were doing were a few years old, some of them probably 10 years old. But these guys had been doing some really, really cool stuff uh, 10 years ago already. So, for example, all of the log centralization for all of those application components and so on were done on big data platform. and and that was very good, but it meant that they were running a very, very big, uh, big data footprint um, to actually be able to treat all those logs in real time and get all these statistical information that they needed to drive, drive the business that came from ad counting and, and so on. And so something that was obvious to us is that Google Cloud has amazing uh, big data services. So you can think of uh, Dataflow, Dataproc, uh, BigQuery, and so on. And so it became very obvious really early um, in the migration that we were going to 
have to leverage some of those services to um, improve the platform uh, properly uh, to make it adapt to the new volume of data that we were going to uh, pipe through it wanted to control costs at the same time. So uh, yeah, it became quickly obvious that we were going to be heavy users of, uh, of uh, BigQuery, of, uh, of uh, Dataproc. So the nice thing, for example, about uh, Dataproc, which is basically your uh, Hadoop cluster um, as a service, is that we spin it up uh, when we need it and we tear it down when we don't need it. And we're not paying you know, for the additional cost of running those VMs for, for nothing, which was something that was currently happening in the BlackBerry data centers, for example. Um, they wouldn't auto-scaling in, in private co-location, private data centers, it's not something very common that exists. It's something that you're mostly gonna see in the cloud. And so a leveraging that was gonna be very important. Okay, so that's data proc, which is really cool. I, I've been working with it myself a lot lately. Let's talk about the other two texts just so that the audience can understand what they are. We'll start with data flow. Could you sure. let them know what that is? Right, um, so uh, data flow is a streaming uh, technology. So basically what we use it for, it's Java-based, a Scala if you want. And so basically it allows you to run a piece of code on Dataflow without the need to orchestrate the, the machines to do it. In our case, what we, were, what we wrote in Dataflow are simply parsers. Uh, we had a lot of log lines. Uh, so some people might be familiar with uh, Fluentd, Logstash, and so on. Brock libraries to parse uh, log lines into little chunks. So, for example, you have a log line, an Apache log line of a web server. In that log line, you're going to have the timestamp, uh, the process name. Uh, you're going to have the path to uh, the URL that was called and maybe the HTTP return code. And so what we needed to do was to break down those log lines into some things that we were going to be able to search on later. So parsing a log line means, you know, we're identifying this first piece of characters are going to be the timestamp. Next piece of character are going to be uh, the URL, and finally the HTTP error code is going to be something else. Once we store that intelligently somewhere, we're going to be able to query and look for lines where HTTP equals 200. We're looking only for those lines and so on. So parsing our logs was going to be something very important, and so we built those parsing uh, functions into Dataflow. So let me uh, expand a bit more on that logging architecture. So we went with uh, FluentD as an agent running on all of our VMs. They grab, um, they tail the log lines and they tail the logs back to a service which is called PubSub. PubSub is a message queue in uh, Google Cloud. It's uh, automated, it scales automatically behind the scenes. It's very much, uh, think of uh, Kafka, any kind of other messaging queue. It's very similar to that, but you don't have to manage the infrastructure. It's uh, very reliable, or after running it for a year, we've determined that it was going to be very reliable. It works really well. So we send our log lines into PubSub, and then we have our data flow clusters that read out of PubSub and grab those log lines, break them and chunk them up into meaningful data, and then we go and store that somewhere else. In our case, we stored that in Google Cloud Storage, and we send that as well in another stack, which is kind of the Elk stack into Elasticsearch and Kibana. So the Elasticsearch and Kibana piece basically gives real a real-time view into the logs to all the application developers and all the operations. So we can track what's happening in real time to the application. And the other fork of that pipeline is uh, writing those logs into uh, Google Cloud Storage so that we can later uh, load those log lines into a BigQuery to make further analysis or on larger time ranges, date ranges, and so on. 
Okay, so there wasn't a user reason really to do all the the log mining. It was really more for you guys to, to measure your success yeah. and see see what how the engine was running, so to speak. Exactly, because in the past, so uh, all of this log centralization was happening on the Hadoop platform. But when a, an application developer or someone from operations needed to look something up, all they could do was to uh, basically schedule a MapReduce job to go through all those those logs that were um, stored on HDFS to look what they were um, looking for. But they had to queue that up and it wasn't very efficient. And let's say it more or less worked like grep, right? They're looking for a keyword in those huge bucket of logs. So they would find that keyword and then they said, oh, I wanted to see what happened just before or right after. They actually couldn't. They only found the keywords that they were looking for, right? So um, that made it very difficult, which is why we introduced Elasticsearch. And its latest version, Elasticsearch, allows you to do context search as well. So once you find the um, data that you're looking for and you need to look right before or right after, that's possible and in real time and fairly quickly. So very valuable. Okay. And uh, for those listening, let's talk a little bit about BigQuery. Can you explain the technology, how it was used? We have a lot, a lot of data at BlackBerry. So daily, we're getting very close to a petabyte of logs every day. So that's a lot, a lot of data. Yeah. Um, so we're pushing the limits of what we're able to do with our traditional stacks. Uh, so, for example, in Elasticsearch, NoSQL, kind of NoSQL technology, you know, we can hold a couple of days of that. But if we need to search past uh, seven days, it gets very difficult to do so. So that's where something like BigQuery comes in. BigQuery is actually able to do that kind of thing. Um, and it's all uh, SQL compatible. So what we decided to do is to store our data there into Google Cloud Storage in a format that is going to be compatible with BigQuery. So when we need to look into our logs, or let's say 15 days ago, we can go in and just load those that archive of logs that we have that was created 15 days ago. But we can also load a whole longer duration and look, browse through that data a lot more quickly than than we could before. Okay, with an application like this, the thing that um, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't think of is um, it's a global application, or at least it used to be. I, I you know, I was certainly a user of it uh, when I had a BlackBerry. You know, lots of people were throughout the world, so which means different languages, which means different character sets, which means all kinds of issues or things that uh, you know, I don't, I probably don't even know how to deal with. Talk to me about the multi-language aspect of things. Like, what are the challenges? What did you have to do with it? How did that work? Not many people might know this, but today, uh, BlackBerry Messenger still has a, a total user base of, uh, I would say, between 60 and 70 million users. So that's still quite huge. Um, not a lot of them are still in North America, though. For some reason, that escapes me. Uh, BBM is still very popular in Asia, especially um, Indonesia. And so while there are some definite customizations into the application to deal uh, with uh, the Indonesian language, so just to uh, support those characters. Um, but then we came with, um, I, I quickly noticed a problem that existed in the application uh, before the migration was um, around the search engine. So in the application, you can search for things, uh, so channels, excuse the analogy here, but they're kind of like Facebook groups. The search engine didn't work very well in multiple language. Basically it was set to work in English, and while a majority of the content was actually not in English. Right. Um, so I don't speak Indonesian at all, but I was told that the search engine performed fairly poorly. And, you know, that was, I quickly identified that 
when I saw how, how the search engine was built. Um, so that's something I decided to tackle to actually try to fix that and uh, make the search engine support better, a bigger variety of, the, of languages. So now that took some effort. We had to rebuild that component pretty much from scratch. But now um, we're able to support, I believe, 60 uh, different languages, something like that. Quickly uh, noticed a big improvement in search results in the application, uh, which means, you know, better user experience and, and so on. So I think those are the kind of efforts that we were able to kind of fit into the migration, some okay. remediation efforts as well. So I have to ask, and I, I suspect it could be an, it's an episode on its own, but like, what are some things that one does to a search engine to improve multi-language support? <laughs> so, so basically what we're doing is people is, are submitting content, right, um, to the application. So they're, they're posting content. And so the first step is to actually detect what language that's in. And so there are a couple of libraries out there. A lot of them are open source, actually. So those libraries are, are made to detect what language a sentence is in. So that's kind of the logic that we applied there. So when we push, when someone pushes content to the application, we try to detect uh, what language is in. And obviously there's, there's you know, a margin of error there. Sometimes we can make the wrong guess, but that's fine because we, we learned how to deal with that. So once we identify the language it's in, then we understand that, you know, okay, so this was um, pushed in English. Uh, we need to run an English analyzer on it. So, so natural language search involves a couple of technologies. I don't want to go too deep, um, but you need things such as stemmers, lemmers, and all, all to kind of break down a sentence in one of those language into something that's searchable, uh, stop words and so on. So for example, uh, the, the famous example is, I think is uh, the quick brown fox. So stop words, for example, are you're gonna be dropping the most common things to try to make your, your search more relevant. So in the sentence, the quick brown fox, you're gonna drop the, because the is right. a, a very common word in English and doesn't make much sense. However, in Indonesian, that word is going to be something else, right? It's not going to be the, so you can't drop the, it doesn't make sense to drop the anymore if someone pushes Indonesian. So we're going to apply the logic that is specific to a language to analyze it and to then to make, uh, to improve those search results. Okay. That's kind of how it works behind the scenes. Okay, cool. I have a lot of questions, but I really don't want to derail, go too, too far, but uh, super interesting work. So obviously that was something you identified along the way. Do you have a uh, kind of switching gears to the migration process? Like if you're migrating lots of servers I, and not lift and shift and re-engineering aspects, like do you have any sort of methodology or process or practice or anything kind of extra to help deal with the unexpected things that cropped up? Because I'm sure this isn't the only one. Right. So to kind of organize, so once we, we you know, divided all those components and understood them individually, and then we started to tie them back together and understood all their dependencies between each other, we could actually, we were able to have a dependency map and to basically trickle down to the application that has the least dependencies. And so, which in reality means it's the easiest to move. Right. And so that kind of um, makes our choice more evident. So we decided to migrate what was easiest first, what required the less effort. And at equal um, effort, we chose the one that had the biggest user impact that would improve user experience the most. So, for example, one of the first things we decided to move to the cloud was simply the SSL handshake or SSL offloading for all of those Asian users. So SSL negotiation is usually a three-way round trip. It, it takes a three-way. So if these people 
are living in Indonesia and are accessing data centers in Canada, it means they're going back and forth many times, right? Just, just to make that, trigger that secure connection. So definitely moving those, those handshakes closer to the users, so moving them somewhere close to them in Asia, um, improved their experience uh, quite a bit. So that was gonna be an easy win for us. Uh, something that was gonna show, that was gonna be you know, suitable for us to make our first steps in the cloud. So a first fairly simple component to move over, but that was also gonna give us a pretty big bang for a buck. That made total sense. Okay. It was gonna com comfort everyone into you know, make, um, knowing that the Google Cloud Platform was gonna be suitable for the rest and so on. Okay, were there any, at the beginning of the migration, was there a list of like, a shopping list of things that mtech wanted to improve as part of the move or did you identify them as you went we mostly identified them as as we went because as i said you know the user separation meant that there was going to be a lot of uh, application development that was going to be required and so it was actually the opportunity to actually to introduce all that new code but also to make you know get really well acquainted with the existing code and to revamp what we thought was kind of wrong or not well written or not you know Mm -hmm. following more recent standards so yep okay okay cool so uh, let's talk about uh, volume you mentioned something like 50 60 million active users how many concurrent roughly how many can as long as it's not a secret again how many concurrent users roughly do you think they have concurrent i don't know but that is the monthly active user number that i'm giving you so that's the um okay. the number of, of users that we see uh, show up in a month Okay, and then in terms of, uh, you mentioned a petabyte, almost a petabyte of logs per day. Are you able to comment on how much data is captured per day? Like user data, non-log user data? Mm. Well, uh, definitely several kilobytes. Uh, so basically anytime something happens um, when you're browsing in the channels, uh, that's gonna be um, written somewhere. Um, okay. So we're gonna be noticed, you know, taking the likes, subscriber counts and so on, if you have channels. So, so yeah, we, we are storing a lot of data. And also you, something you should know is that the BBM application was also, um, this whole infrastructure was also used to take backups of old BlackBerry phones, right? So there's also a big storage component there. Right. Um, to store data from phones from, now this is not as so much the case with iOS and Android phones. So this is something that's probably gonna be uh, diminishing a bit, although there are still some heavy storage requirements for, for the application to store avatars, to store, you know, Right. all that kind of stuff, images, share, th things that you share with people. So a lot of data. Okay. Kind of curious about, um, I know you have a lot of experience with other clouds. I'm kind of curious about, you know, what you saw as strengths of the Google Cloud. Like, what, were there any features or technologies or, or even working with Google themselves? Like, what were the main benefits of, of that you that really stood out to you of using GCP? One thing I really like is uh, yeah, working with the, the Google project manager. Oh, that guy is really amazing. He's basically the guy that's taking care of uh, Vemtech in the Google Cloud, who um, you know responds to their need, responds to their questions. Basically, it provides oversight to pretty much everything. And uh, that team of, uh, of people from Google has been really amazing the whole time uh, to do some handholding along the project. So working with them first has been a real pressure. And to be honest, I haven't had that kind of opportunity with other cloud vendors. So I might be a little bit biased there. And the, the other thing is really, uh, there are some things that are very nice in the Google Cloud. Uh, one thing that is unbeatable is the speed at which you spin up a VM. I mean, it's so quick compared to other clouds. 
uh, that's kind of uh, uh, nice. And then, well, I, I know this is not going to be as as true in 2018, but the Google Cloud, uh, I would say, had some good advanced in terms of uh, of big data service offerings in, in their cloud. And so last year, it was pretty obvious that you know there are some things that were going to be more convenient for us um, that were present in the Google Cloud rather than Amazon, for example. Right. Although I know there's some, some recent efforts to kind of change that on Amazon's end. And so that might not be as a clear line in 2018. Right. And, and that's so relevant what you just said. I mean, I, I think uh, Amazon released something like 1,100 features uh, last year and, uh, you know, Google and uh, Azure are, you know, really, I don't know their numbers, but I bet you they're not small and I bet you they're comparable, which is actually shameless plug why I launched the uh, Cloudscape to help IT workers understand those because mm-hmm. it's, it's like really difficult to keep up. Uh, for anyone on even just one <laughs> cloud. Of course. Uh, something that was also very, very interesting is that we got access to basically the lead engineers for some of those services. So I talked about Dataflow before. And so we started using Dataflow when it was fairly uh, a new offering right by Google. And so they kind of gave us access to the lead engineer, the guy who conceived that and, and who built it to help us understand how it worked and if it fit our use case and you know if there were any catches, things we should pay attention to and so on. So that was like super interesting to be able to talk to um, those uh, Google gurus. What about downtime? Were you allowed uh, significant downtime for the components that you were moving? Of course not. I don't know any customers that like, of our customers that allow downtime. So no, that was actually no downtime at all. Uh, no downtime allowed. So that made um, for a very interesting migration. Okay. Do, do you want to tell about, talk about the strategy on, on how one accomplishes that? Yeah. So as I said, you know, we, we discovered all of those individual components. We moved them to the cloud progressively. And then what we did was with the help of another Google technology called Firebase. Um, we can talk about that in another talk. We were able actually to trigger a percentage of users to start using the new platform. So let's say on the first day, uh, we have this new component that's running in the cloud and we move one percent of the users over to that so kind of like a canary instance we all looked at it monitored it for a while until we were happy with it no error codes nothing weird or we understand everything that was going on then we increase the traffic a bit to five percent and so on and more and more until the service is completely transferred over to that new service well i was just going to ask what what so does that allow you to roll back to the original component uh if things yes. aren't going as expected Yes, it, uh, it does. We, we prepared for that. We made sure that our application could handle the rollback as well. Yep. So that's something very important is to be able to roll back if something was going wrong. We don't want to impact any users or if we do a very minimum number of users that we could, you know, be able to fix by hand if, if needed. Okay. Um, so this has been a really interesting story, and I know you're just kind of buttoning up the last com- last bits, but so maybe a bit early to ask this, but what are some of the things that you learned through this migration strategy or otherwise uh, that you'll apply to future migrations? It was the first time that I saw this amount of big data, and when you're yeah nearing that volume, it's uh, something that uh, becomes very tricky. Dealing with uh, 500 terabytes or one petabyte of data is actually very different. Uh, so that's something that I, that I learned there. Also, what else did I learn? That, you know, it's uh, not easy to work with 200 people. It needs a lot of coordination. You know, portions of that team were on the other side of the planet. And so it took a lot of 
uh, personal efforts to be able to keep in touch with all those people in different time zones and sync up and have everybody uh, talking to each other. But also um, that gave us a lot of velocity because, you know, people uh, working in my time zone, I could hand off something in another time zone when I, my shift was off and wake up the next morning and having that task actually completed. So that was that added a lot of velocity to that project. It's probably not something we could have done in a year if um, we weren't um, if we didn't have a follow the sun model. Right, right. So a true factory approach. I like it. Yeah. Well, that, that's just been a fascinating story, period. I, I think that uh, we've we've covered it really well. So I, it's been a pleasure to have you. So at this point in the show, we do what's something that's called the lightning round. And that's where we get to know you a little bit better. Talk about, I ask you a couple of questions uh, and you answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you uh, okay. game? I am ready. All right. So uh, what project are you most proud of? Oh, so uh, that's a good one. So probably one of the first projects I, I did uh, when I joined Pythium was um, five years ago, uh, uh, migration uh, to AWS. We had a customer that had a website to uh, sell and lease uh, books to students. They were spending way too much money in private colos, and I uh, recommended that they move to the cloud. And I pretty much single-handedly uh, moved them to the cloud, and that was a whole lot of fun, and it was a very gratifying uh, migration for me. Cool. Okay. On the subject of books, uh, can you name a book that's had the most impact to your career? Hmm. To my career? I don't know. I don't know. Nothing really comes to mind. But to uh, myself would be probably a, a, a novel by Jules Verne, like um, 80 years, 80 days around the world or something like that. Okay, cool. That I don't counts. Know the exact title in English. <laughs> that counts. Actually, why don't you say it in French? 80 jours en ballon. Okay. And uh, standing or sitting desk? Oh, I sit. I sit. However, when I'm on a call or I have to do some intense thinking, I, I walk around my basement like a crazy man. <laughs> Fair enough. Are you using a laptop or a desktop? I use a laptop uh, with uh, several monitors. Okay. And is that laptop a Mac or PC or I guess Chromebook? It is a Mac. Okay. Are you an uh, iPhone or an Android user? I'm an iPhone user. Okay. And uh, what is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? I turn to a terminal. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect that from any sysadmin, so good, good one. That's right up there with SSH, which has come up a few times. Well, that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping a friend know where to find us. And you can do that by writing us a short, honest review on iTunes or just telling them where you listen to us. And as always, we love your feedback. You can reach us at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.